Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he's set to become the highest paid baseball player in history. And no wonder they call Shohei Otani Showtime, the first dual threat ace on the mound menace at the plate since Babe Ruth more than a century ago. And one of the front runners to land this highly coveted free agent is the Toronto Blue Jays. We find out what makes Showtime so unique and ask where could he wind up? Time's Person of the Year has featured everybody from world leaders to innovators, peacemakers, influencers, and more. This year, Taylor Swift not only claims the title, she makes history. Time's senior executive editor is with us to explain the choice. Menorah lighting ceremonies were held across Canada late today to mark the first night of Hanukkah, and it comes two months after the horrific Hamas attack on southern Israel on October the 7th. We speak with Michael Levitt of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center about the significance of the celebrations at a time when concerns over the rise in anti-Semitism are front and center in homes right across the country. But first, the 14th annual Food Price Report is out today. Teams of researchers at four Canadian universities say we'll be paying between 2.5 and 4.5% more for groceries in 2024. That's better than 2023's 6%, but costs will still be rising on some basic items. Uh, Well, for others, not quite as much. We'll get all the details and find out why there is some cause for optimism at the grocery store this year. We'll start tonight with something that really touches all of us, and that is the price of food. It's been tough. It's been tough the past little while. This year was really difficult, I found, at the grocery store, just to find sometimes you'd go in and there just was nothing on sale or nothing that you wanted. And it's tough to sort of get that grocery bill down week after week. Of course, 2023 was a tough year period. We know we know that. Uh, but Canadians hoping for better food prices going into 2024 may not get their wish immediately. But as inflation cools, a new report today that's usually pretty bang on suggests that people could soon see some savings at the grocery store. The 2024 food price report was released by researchers at four Canadian universities today. It estimates that food prices will increase by about 2.5 to 4.5% over the next year. To compare it to last year, and they were right, I think it was about 5.9 total, they predicted 5 to 7%. Uh, so it was really big in 2023. It will cool down a bit in 2024, but not entirely. Uh, Food costs, though, will go up across several categories. The most, the highest bakery, meat, vegetables, all showing 5 to 7% increases. Dairy and fruit will see the lowest rise, just 1% to 2%. That's good news. Restaurants, if you're someone who eats out, modest increase, 3 to 5%. Of course, Canadians, we've all been cutting back on food spending this year as uh, interest rate hikes and the cost of living and all those things have taken their toll. You add it all up, and a family of four in this country will be paying on average about $700 more on food in 2024. Uh, the report also comes on the same day that top executives from Canada's grocery chains appeared before the Commons Agricultural Committee in Ottawa to once again talk about stabilizing food prices. They're also facing questions from MPs about why they haven't signed a voluntary code of conduct just yet. Loblaw Chairman Galen Weston spoke about his concerns today. We absolutely will sign the code. We've always said that we would sign the code. Um, We just need to sign a code that doesn't increase uh, the risk of higher food prices to Canadians. And as the code is currently drafted, um, you know, our strong conviction is that it will do so. Well, let's get back to that food price report. Uh, Matthias Margulis is an assistant professor in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at the University of British Columbia, one of the teams that took part in the 14th annual food price report. And he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. 
Hi, Ben. Great to be here with you. This is an amazing. I mean, I was looking at, at your predictions for 2023, and they were pretty bang on. They were pretty bang on. Uh, I guess we see some relief in 2024, some cause for optimism, but not quite yet. I mean, it's not. We're not out of the woods just yet. Well, that, well, that's right. I mean, I, I think the the larger lesson we can take is if you look at what's happened in Canada and even globally, is we are now seeing those, that really high rate of, of food price increases that we experienced in the last year and a half in particular, that, that is now beginning to slow down. And, and that's a, a trend we're seeing everywhere. So I think that that is good news that these uh, rapid increases that we've all really had to get used to um, will not be going as fast as they have been over the last 18 months. Right. And yet, they're still going up, though. Just so you know, consumers are aware, you haven't predicted a stop here. The prices, the price of food, will continue to rise in 2024 in some areas more than others. Yeah, you know what I think it's important for everybody to remember. You know, food prices are like age. The number increases every year. That you can't stop. What what really matters is the rate of growth, right? So when food prices are increasing about at the same rate of general inflation, and you know wages are keeping up, then we don't really notice. But the conditions we had the last couple of years where food prices were, you know, accelerating at a pace higher than other areas where we were seeing inflation, that was kind of really shocking for us as consumers. And it's something we haven't seen in Canada in, you know, since the late, you know, early 1970s. So this is something, you know, most Canadians have not lived through uh, in their lifetime. So it really was a sort of a shocking uh, experience for us. Yeah, that sticker shock that each and everyone has had at the grocery store of late uh, can't, can't be uh, can't be understated um, or can't be overstated. Where are we going to see? Because I understand it's it's different depending on the product, but where are we going to see the bigger increases next year? Well, in the report, you know, what we try to do is we try to project based on past trends, and we try to use you know some pretty sophisticated models. Um, so as you were you know, stating earlier, we kind of do expect to see uh, bakery meat. Uh, and vegetables to be high. And I mean, intuitively, that makes sense. If we look at meat, if we look at the last year and a half, you know, we've had these, you know, drought conditions which have affected grazing for cattle. It, you know, we've also seen the price for, for feed for cattle increase. So, you know, in North America, there's been a huge uh, culling of the herds, uh, and that has led to higher prices because there's less, you know, animals available. And so, and it also takes time, you know, it takes years for herds to come back. It's not like, you know, wheat where you can just plant more the next year. So that explains why meat prices will sort of stay stay high as well. Some of the challenges on the processing side and, and labor there. Um, vegetable, you know, vegetables will stay high again. You know, the climate is changing. It's becoming increasingly unpredictable. Sometimes it's not raining enough. Sometimes it's raining too early. Uh, sometimes it's raining too much, and uh, and that's been affecting you know uh, production cycles. Uh, heavily. So we have all these things that are introducing a lot of uncertainty on a year-to-year basis. But other areas, we're seeing a bit more uh, flatter growth. So, so I think that sort of uh, helps us understand some of why we're seeing these differences in different food commodities. Yeah, I, I guess when it comes to bakery items as well, we're still seeing some of the impacts. It's mentioned in the report. We're still seeing some of the impacts about what's going on around the world. I mean, this is a global commodity, right? So we're seeing still seeing some of the impact of that. Exactly. I think it's uh, it's always important to think about, you know, any commodity that we purchase in Canada is part of a global market. So even though in Canada we're quite lucky that we have such a uh, robust and resilient food system, and in fact, you know, I, I, I do like to remind our listeners sometimes that we're actually experiencing some of the less, the minimal amounts of food inflation compared to the global average and compared to even other rich countries. 
Um, so we're quite lucky that we have such a robust system, um, whereas in other countries, you know, the rates of food inflation are double, triple, quadruple, sometimes, you know, 10 times more than what we see here. And so these global shocks, you know, Canada is able to absorb those shocks uh, because of our very, you know, uh, large uh, capacity to produce food as a country that, you know, really ex- we're a big food exporter more than we are net importers. So we're really able to buffer Canadians from a large, a large number of those global shocks that countries, by comparison, that are big food importers, um, really feel the price increases much more than we do. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've certainly seen what's happened to the price of grain in, in, in countries that don't grow their own and so on because of what's going on uh, specifically in Ukraine and Russia, but elsewhere as well. Uh, we're going to see a bit, of, according to the report at least, we're going to see a bit of relief when it comes to items such as dairy and fruit as well, apparently. How does that work? Well, I mean, that's kind of based on uh, what we project based on uh, on past uh, production. So, you know, the, the models that we come up with, they're, they're, they're doing their best uh, best to guess what might happen given what's happened the last couple of years, taking data from other years. And so there, there's a hope that we won't have sort of see that kind of extreme uh, weather that we had last summer that really was quite, uh, in the cane context, really harmful to food production here, that we, you know, we've had really bad bad weather in the, in the summer. Um, a lot of us out here in BC, you remember all those uh, burnt, uh, all that burnt fruit <laughs> a couple right. of years ago. So, uh, so we're hoping that, you know, hopefully the, the weather won't be as extreme. We're moving into an El Nino uh, weather pattern in this system. And so that um, you might see some moderation, at least for North America. Uh, in general, a lot of the harvests are looking pretty good in North America. So I think this year will be a maybe more positive year for Canadian farmers and producers with production levels looking much more promising than they have been in, in previous years. I should mention again that last year, amidst all this unpredictability, I think your forecast was about five point it was about between five and seven percent, and it came in at five point nine. So that's pretty that's pretty spot on considering just how chaotic everything was. Yeah, I mean, I think we we got lucky. You know, it's uh, right. you know you, you really ne- you really never know. Um, the models are are learning all the time, and they're, we're trying to get better at this. You know, it's it's just really hard to to predict with so many moving pieces. You know. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, when we did the work for this year, that was before um, the violence broke out in Israel and Gaza. And that could have implications, you know, in terms of the Middle East more broadly on oil prices, you know. And so there's, there's always things that happen throughout the year that you can't sort of anticipate. So, you know, I, I never, uh, I'm never too confident with our prediction. I think what really matters is we're just trying to understand what's happening globally and nationally when it comes to prices and trying to understand their impacts on everyday consumers. Matthias, a few interesting things that I found in the report. You did focus on just how much savvier consumers have become and what that might do uh, to retailers as they're sort of forced, their hand is forced a bit by how much more selective and uh, and willing to shop around uh, consumers have been over the past year. That's right, Ben. We have seen this significant shift in how consumers are approaching uh, food purchasing, what they're buying, when they're buying it. And I think that's, that just reflects the, this, the reality of ice facing with, you know, uh, tighter household budgets. Um, and, you know, well, I, think it's, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, consumers, uh, your average consumer can probably modify their shopping habits to at least sort of uh, minimize the, the impacts of higher food prices. It's also important to remember that there's many folks, you know, especially lower income folks and, and other vulnerable folks who just have a really hard time uh, purchasing enough food and enough food to keep them than healthy. So, um, yes, we're seeing uh, behavior, consumer behavior to, to adjust, but also we, we are aware that some people are really struggling and challenging to, to buy enough food. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that was in the report as well. Did, was it not that we had purchased less food in 2023 than we had in the past? Yeah, so I, what, one of the things I report uh, saw when we were looking at sort of total retail spending on food from uh, on year on year, we saw a, a, a total re- a reduction per capita. So what that tells us is like we, we're not exactly sure because we don't have all, we don't we can't really survey every every household and ask like what specifically did you do, but that tells us intuitively that some people are are spending less because maybe they're moving to less expensive versions of products or they're maybe removing more beef from their from their spending which is you know one of the really higher cost items but maybe it's also telling us that that some people like are just eating are potentially eating less because they they can't they can't afford to eat uh, as much as uh, as they would normally do because of the not just the increase in in food prices but in the broader context of the increasing cost of living with you know uh, with uh, housing costs also going through the roof in Canada and energy costs uh, so all those things put together you know do, do put pressure on budgets. Yeah, we certainly know that food bank use has been way, way up in the past year, and that's certainly a reflection of those higher costs. Ottawa's been paying a lot of attention to the grocers these days. They were back on Parliament Hill today. At least I think Walmart was, as was Loblaw. Sobeys was there earlier in the week. Uh, What have you made of that whole push to try to get uh, the grocers themselves to try to help out here? Well, I think it's an interesting conversation. You know, there's a couple of things going on. There's this discussion of of a code of conduct, uh, for grocers, and then there's also um, other legislation in the works around anti-competitive uh, practices by some of the larger uh, uh, grocery retailers. So, you know, my view is, you know, one of the things we lack is is information, particularly on how uh, the large grocery retailers, the, their pricing, whether they're engaging in anti-competitive uh, practices. You know, we, we know in the past they have, that's, they've been fined for that. And so I think it's important for, for, for them and for, for everybody to, you know, increase our, you know, for us to have greater trust in our, in our grocery retailers to have more transparency and more information about what's going on. So that way we know if, if, you know, retailers are in fact pricing in fair ways and they're not doing things that, you know, increase the cost on consumers. So I think that's, that's a, that's a good step in the, in the general direction. Um, um, and I think that would be good for grocery stores if they want to sort of uh, regain the trust uh, from the public, which, you know, a lot of the polls suggest, you know, surveys suggest, you know, uh, you know, most of the public attributes a lot of the blame for higher food prices to to retailers because that's sort of where they see it. So uh, if we had more confidence that these these prices were, you know, fair reflections of their increasing costs and not um, just an opportunity to um, to hammer consumers a bit more then I think we'd all we'd all feel more um, more comfortable and have more trust. Yeah, it's funny because when I was mentioning this report today and talking and about talking to you, uh, someone I was speaking to said, "Oh yeah, agreed. <laughs> that's it." I mean, a lot of people are now convinced that that's what's happened here. That in other words, that record prof- they see the record profits, they see uh, they see the price of food at the store, they see these continued increases, and they think someone's raking it in somewhere. Uh, and it's hard not it's sort of hard to to get people to move off that stance, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, so this is why more information is, I think, in everybody's interest, and you know, and up to now, it's. It's been voluntary for big retailers to hand over their pricing uh, information and all the details of their supply chains. And I think transparency is really in everybody's interest. Yeah, because as is often pointed out, uh, we have no choice, right? We have to, we have to either, we have to buy the stuff that we eat, more or less. So we're kind of over the barrel when it comes to this thing. And, and you're right. We, I mean, we certainly need to have more confidence that uh, we're not being gouged. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, Mateus, congratulations again on a 14th report. This is always a really interesting one that people uh, look out for. And I guess we'll see uh, We'll see if the predictions come true, as true as they did last year, this year. Uh, thanks so much well, for I your hope, time. I, I always yeah. hope we're wrong and it's a bit lower. So thanks again for having me and I wish you and your listeners a happy holiday season. Wow, 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 wow.
ever sent your DNA in to one of those DNA testing companies? I haven't. I obviously know people who have because lots of people have done it. Um, and I haven't, I, it's not that because of, of any concerns or I just, I've just never done it. I've just never done it. I'm sure other people have. Let me know if you have. I'd be interested to know what your experience was like with it. Uh, one of the issues that has always been top of mind for people who talk about these things is the security implications because there is nothing more personal than your DNA, right? Um, and we're getting a clearer picture now of a pretty massive data breach after hackers were able to gain access to the personal information, apparently, of some 6.9 million uh, customers of 23andMe, one of these genetic testing sites. That's almost half of its user base of 14 million. Uh, the, you know, the company offers health insights and ancestry information based on customer-submitted DNA collected by saliva swabs. You know, you know how it's done. Uh, now, they learned about the hack back in early October. Uh, it's been talked about since, but the true extent of it is now far clearer. In some cases, this is according to Global News, in some cases, usernames, family trees, ancestry reports, locations, profile pictures, and birth years were leaked. And while the stolen data did not include DNA records, 23andMe told Global in an email that the breach may have leaked, um, may have leaked specifically where on a user's chromosomes they and their relatives had matching DNA. So some information along those lines. Um, According to a proposed class action lawsuit against 23andMe that was filed in BC Supreme Court this week, the stolen information was then put up for sale on the dark web, or at least some of it. Um, when the company first disclosed this breach, it said that it was likely that it had been caused by customers reusing passwords that have already appeared in other data breaches, allowing hackers to use a technique known as credential stuffing. But, I mean, in this case, if you, if you have that kind of a database uh, with that kind of sensitive information on it, I think you need to assume that probably the weak link is going to be your clients, right? Uh, so they've always advocated for uh, two-step authentication, but I don't know what happened in this case necessarily. I guess we'll find out more. Um, you know, I mean, the affordability of it has really triggered a booming DNA testing industry, uh, really dedicating to helping people find long-lost relatives and ancestral ties in far, far away countries. Newer tests can actually spot mutations that put you at risk of developing certain diseases and so on that will respond to certain drugs. But this is very, very valuable information. So obviously, security of it is paramount. And I thought we'd look in not only to this particular breach, but also just what it says more generally about these services and just what you should know uh, before you... You send in your DNA. Joining me now is Kerry Bowman. He's a professor of bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto. Kerry, thank you. Happy to be here. This is a uh, this is a massive breach. Uh, you know the details of it are a bit complex, but but in other words, about half their database seems to have been in some way, shape, or form accessed by uh, by someone outside. Mm -hmm. You know exactly that, and that that's exactly what has happened. And you know I. I, I I'm a bioethicist, so I, I've been teaching ethical questions with this kind of, you know, genetic information that companies such as this are holding. And, you know, the pushback against me has always been, you know, these these types of breaches are next to impossible. They've got the highest security, uh, you know, imaginable. And look, I'm not a tech person. I, I need to just, you know, I, I can't really counter that. But I do know that, you know, hacking's an arms race and it never stops. And so... It's a very serious situation that they have been hacked. And, you know, why do I say that? You know, if there's a type of information that's more personal, more intimate than your genome, your genetic information, 
I don't know what that is. And, you know, this is a whole different level. Uh, identity theft is a living nightmare. Uh, but this is a whole different level. And the implications of, of holding this much information and this kind of information could go on for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I think in this case, I mean, if there's ever a weak spot in security for any thing that holds information like this, it's generally the customer. And I think that might have been what happened here. At least that's what the early indications are, that this was people were essentially had their passwords hacked because they were using them. We'll see what, if that's true or not. But there's always a weak link in these systems. You would have thought, though, and you mentioned it, uh, I know that they had, the company itself encourages two-step authentication, but obviously doesn't require it. Um, so they were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to this, despite the fact they're holding on to this most sensitive of sensitive information. They were, they were. And and look, it, it may well be, as you've said, that, you know, people were using standard passwords for everything, blah, blah, blah. But but the thing is, the company has responsibilities. And, and, and you know, if that and a lot of people do that, passwords can be a nightmare for a lot of people. Uh, I'm not saying it's great, but it is a reality. But it, the onus is on the company to have a lot of checks and balances for safety. This information, I mean, it's funny, it's people who are reluctant to, uh, you know, to answer the phone to a strange number, for instance, are only too happy to swab themselves and send it off to some, send it off into the mail to some unknown person in a company. I get there is a good side to this. Clearly, people see the benefits of it or they wouldn't use it. Um, but there is a downside to this. And I think, and this has come up a lot, the prices they charge are not the prices that they, is not the cost of what they do. So somewhere that uh, somewhere they need to make up that difference. And the, that's that's in the sense that they own your data, right? They own your DNA. Yeah, they, they own your DNA and their secondary uses with the DNA that involve pharmaceutical research and other things. So what they do is they decouple your DNA. So if you've had your genome, uh, you know, fully mapped, so to speak, it would be completely just decoupled from your name, address, etc. Now that sounds perfect, doesn't it? But, you know, there a growing amount of research shows there's still ways to identify persons, even from snippets of, of their DNA, and it gets quite complicated. But, but you know, people have, have testing done in other ways. So your data is not really safe. And so what's happened is you, the consumer rather, and I don't remember the cost, but I, I seem to remember it's, it's above $100 easily, um, uh, you pay for it and they've got access and they're able to use it in different ways. And, you know, so what are the benefits? So there, there's really two arms to this. Uh, one would be sort of medical predictive and, and the other would be ancestry. The medical predictive element, um, you know, the biometric data, you know, uh, do you have a propensity for heart disease, et cetera? It's getting better. There's no question it's getting better, but it's not a lot different than what a family history would tell you. Uh, and most of us do know. No, that's not the case if you're adopted or something or you don't know your family history. But but a lot of us do know our family history. So I would argue the med medical benefits are actually even controversial and, and fairly limited. Ancestry, that's an open question. That means different things to different people. That could be the, the most exciting thing in the world to find out that you've got a distant cousin in Poland or some, or maybe not a cousin, but a distant relation of some form in Poland. Other people couldn't care less. Um, but you're paying a very high price for this, I would argue. And I would say, look, it's not for me to tell people how to spend their money. And people have different thresholds for risk. But what I would say is this is risky, putting your data out there. And it's not just your data. I mean, there's implications for your children um, as well and other people within your family. 
And, you know, these large databases, you know, more and more insurance companies and the police are very interested in them. Is that no, they don't have easy access to them. The police can, by the way. But is this really what people signed on for? And, you know, in their defense, they'd say, well, we have an open, you know, we, we have a clear consent. But, you know, if you've seen some of those consents, page 17, you know, small print, maybe not page 17, but you know what I mean? Well, they, yeah, they, <laughs> they can I don't know how really many people read those. I don't know yeah. how many people read them, uh, which is fascinating because I, or people read them close, more closely when they're ordering something uh, online than they do when they're sending in their DNA. I mean, I'm, this is a presumption yeah. of mine. It was interesting to see where, according to the reporting, some of this information that appears to have been taken from 23andMe wound up because that should be a bit of a, a bit of a wake up call. So uh, on a leading crime forum called Black Hat, I believe, or Black Hat Hacking Crime Forum, it was called called uh, Beach Forums. Uh, and yeah. they were sort of managing. Now, we don't know. There were no identities, but they were sort of sectioning off what they had found by ethnic groups. So of Chinese heritage, Ashkenazi yeah. Jews and broadly Arabian, you know, um, that's not a wake up call that I don't know what is. Well, that's exactly it. And, and, and that's, that is what's happening. And that's probably coming from mitochondrial DNA, but, but, you know, a technical point, but ethnic information and look how tense the world is at this point, ethnic and identifying ethnic information, racial information. I mean, we all have a right to protect that in many ways. And, and you know, as you said, at one point, there was a particular focus on Ashkenazi Jews, which are, you know, most often of European heritage. Um, what was that about? It, it's hard to be completely clear. But there's a lot of reasons to be very worried about this. And, you know, it's marketed as a lot of fun. It's often marketed as, as, as a, a, you know, Christmas gifts, buy it and practically it's a bit of expensive if you ask me for a, a, a stocking stuffer but but you know use it in that way right um and you know even with ancestry it's not all of us it's kind of a white people's game mostly i mean and that's what the research shows it, it's mostly upper middle class or or middle class at least white people that are most concerned uh, about looking at that and you know it's a bit of a parlor game actually it's some people are truly trying to figure out you know, their their longer term identity. But for a lot of people, it's pretty close to a parlor game. And um, look, people can do what they want. But I actually think this is, is a very serious situation. And, and as I said earlier in the interview, you know, when I was teaching the risks of this, even a couple of years ago, the pushback was always the chances of that are so remote. Well, here we are. <laughs> so it's happening. It is. And, and but you knew it would. I mean, in some sense, it had yeah. to. I mean, that's just the that's just the nature of these things that this, as you mentioned earlier, this is a war of types. I mean, this is information that is of some value. I think they were selling it for between a dollar and ten dollars per profile online, which is not a huge amount of money. And we don't really know how complete those uh, those profiles were. That being said, there's clearly value to this. And where there's value, they're going to spend a lot of time trying to poke holes and find ways into your systems. Yeah. And apparently, and clearly they have. That's exactly right. And how much genetic information they, they've been able to hack, I don't know. I don't know. But a point I, I, I would really want to stress here is genetic information in the year 2023, which is, of course, the year we're in right now, 
compared to gener you know genetic information in the year uh, 2033 or something is going to be very very different and you're going to be able to do more and more and more and it's going to be more and more personalized because there's such an explosion of insight into what you can do with genetic information so it's out there but you know what i would say is if people have already joined on to to any of these it, this is a 3.5 billion dollar businesses businesses plural i mean there's more than one of these agencies right so People do have the right, if they're listening to this with horror, um, you know, they do have the right to contact the company and ask that their data be withdrawn. There is a clause in most of this that they can withhold some elements of it. And it doesn't seem to be very clear what elements of that they can hold. But people do have the right to to send an email and say, I need to pull back on this. And they they would respond at least with most of their data. Um, but, but Carrie, when you look at this, I, it strikes me that we've kind of commodified and normalized providing DNA. And I can see the excitement in it. I, again, I can see the excitement in wanting to know if you have a long lost cousin in Donegal or something. But uh, that being said, you're handing over, as you've put it, you're handing over incredibly sensitive information. So I, I suppose the real lesson here is read the fine print. Right. I mean, if you're going to yeah, do this, read the fine do, print and yeah. think it through is what I would say. And, and you know, even if you might say and it's it's a person's call, look, the people can do what they want with their money and their lives. But do remember, it's not just you. Uh, it could be members of your family as well because of the way that, you know, genetics works. And the problem we're seeing right now, that this problem may be greatly compounded in the years ahead. It, it's not going to get milder. It may get larger. Um, also, there's a lot of people out there from governments on up that want this information, and we're paying them, um, you know. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's pretty incredible. But if you really feel, you know, ancestry is incredibly important to who you are, and the only way you can do this, uh, you may want to do it. I must say for ancestry, um, you know, the validity is is it may not be perfect geographically as to, you know, what part of Central Europe you're from or whatever it may be. Um, but in in general, in a general sense, more positive. I, I would argue that right now the medical information is quite limited and it's not that insightful and there's not much you can do with it at this time. That, again, could change. But, you know, if you want to do a risk benefit equation with this, which we often do in ethics, I see the risks as massive. And also, I'd say the risks are not fully understood because this is a moving target. Um, and I see the benefits. You have to decide for yourself what the benefits are, but I'm not seeing it in most cases. Have the authorities uh, been able to keep up with this at all? I know obviously there are rules around what can be accessed by law enforcement, how much of this information can be shared without your consent. Um, I gather in Canada, insurance companies are not allowed to discriminate based on genetic information. Whether yeah. they, I mean, are, have we... As always in these in these situations, it takes a long time for policy to catch up to reality. Yeah. So the good news in Canada is is we do have an act passed. I'm forgetting what year, but before the pandemic, um, you know, for protection of genetic privacy. So that is very helpful. But here's a very important point. You know, for those of us, including me, that that work in hospitals, um, patient information is really there's layers of security and there's lots of legislation and lots of structure. Again, it's not perfect. We've heard of breaches even with hospitals. 
but you you've got the teeth of protocol and laws behind you this is not the same for these companies this is not necessarily considered medical information um and increasingly genetic information is medical information but our laws have not evolved to the point where we can really fine tune on this so you know there's a, an overall genetic protection law which is a godsend if you ask me but but again they're not you know they they're not under the same laws that hospitals in you know Vancouver or Toronto or Winnipeg would be under um and and that's another vulnerability so a last word to you then Carrie and all this i mean this is clearly the cautionary tale that you and others have been warning about uh for some time <laughs> now uh, unfortunately, you know, you never want to be the one to say, I told you so. At the same time, you know, these things will continue to be popular. I mean, I know people who've done it and some people love what they find. I mean, for I mean, it is, it does open up this whole new world. So as we were saying earlier, I suppose really, really here, just be, you know, if you're going to hand over something so sensitive, uh, just know what you're getting into. You know, that's exactly what I want to say. I'm, I'm a great believer in informed consent. Surprise, surprise, I'm an ethicist. But, you know, and part the informed consent with this is you need to understand what the risks are and the depth of what you're handing over. If you still feel I need to do this, go ahead. Uh, but if you don't, if you didn't know all these facts, take this all very seriously. Well, Carrie, thank you so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> This is a really important night for the Jewish community right across the country. I grew up in Montreal, of course, in a part of Montreal that was that had a big Jewish community in it. I uh, grew up with lots of Jewish friends. So I've always known about these days, and, and it's Hanukkah, right? Uh, so menorah lighting ceremonies, you know, the the menorah has the has the um, the nine candles. Is it eight? It's eight and one. I'm going to get this wrong, unfortunately, just now. It's by my, but you know what a menorah looks like. Um, so menorah lighting ceremonies were held across the country after sundown today to mark uh, the first day, the first night of Hanukkah. It's a celebration uh, about finding light in darkness with the first candle lit tonight and seven more to follow over the rest of the week, over next week. Uh, and it comes, of course, two months to the day after that horrific attack on southern Israel by Hamas. Um the war in Gaza, of course, has sparked a lot of emotion in this country. We've seen a spike in, in Islamophobia. We've certainly seen a spike in anti-Semitic attacks in this country, including against synagogues, Jewish schools, Jewish businesses have been targeted, students don't feel safe on university campuses, the list goes on. And that has cast a shadow as families right across the country gather tonight to mark this very special evening. And then there's been decisions that have made that have sort of rubbed salt, rubbed salt in those wounds. First, uh, the city of Moncton canceled its menorah lighting ceremony at City Hall before that was reversed because they came under pressure. And late yesterday, Calgary's mayor canceled a planned attendance at the menorah lighting ceremony at City Hall that took place there late this afternoon. Jody, uh, uh, Jody Gondek posted a statement last night on social media saying that the ceremony at Calgary City Hall had become too political. Here's what she had to say. I feel gutted by this. I am here in this role to bring communities together. And we are at a time when communities are fracturing amongst themselves. This is some of the most devastating stuff I have seen in our city. Yeah. Well, you know, she posted something on social media. She didn't wind up going. Uh, she said, well, I made the difficult decision not to attend this evening's community menorah lighting, uh, so, so on and so forth. Um, it completely get, misses the point about what Hanukkah is all about. I mean, you go to these things. You go and show your support in these moments. That's what you do. That's what a leader does. I, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't go to this. I, I just don't get it at all. I understand that it's emotional. I understand that tensions are high around this issue right now. But this is a community event. 
This is not a political event. This is a community event. And it marks one of the most important days in the calendar for a community that feels like it needs support right now. And the fact that you wouldn't go, I think is just, it just, to me, it was mind boggling. I get it. I get the political, I get, I get, I get why, why she did what she did, but I don't understand it. And I think it's a complete misunderstanding of the meaning and the spirit of the night, right? Um, Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith, she may be overseas right now, but she disagrees with the mayor as well. This is a very important event for the Jewish community, especially in, in light of the, the terrorist attack by Hamas. Uh, we will be having a representative, Matt Jones, attending in Calgary, and we'll also be having uh, Dale Nally attend in Edmonton. We, we stand by the Jewish community uh, at this time, and we want to make sure that, that, we know, that they know that they are valued by us, and so we will take part in their cultural event. Well, joining me now with more on this is Michael Levitt. He's president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Centre Canada in Toronto. And Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Welcome back. Thank you for having me on, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. Well, we, we begin Hanukkah. It is the second month, the two-month anniversary since the horrific attacks of October the 7th. Uh, it feels like this particular celebration of light uh, comes at a time of, of, a, of darkness that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, you, 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 you nailed that right on the head, Ben. It has been um, a very, very difficult um, couple of months, um, obviously both in the Middle East and here for the Jewish community in Canada. So what's normally, you know, a completely joyous celebration, a, a time when the kids and families are coming together and, you know, sufganiyot, which is donuts and latkes and lighting the menorah, it's all tinged with this, darkness with this sadness um that's that's so hard for the jewish community right now you know the the feeling of um how do we celebrate um when all this is going on but like the hanukkah story itself uh, one of resiliency and overcoming adversity i think that's what the jewish community across the country is doing we uh we we need this opportunity to gather together not just with ourselves but with our allies, which is why these candle lightings like the one tonight is so very important. Um, but it's, it's again, going to be a time of um, not as much joy as we might have hoped and, uh, and a lot of reflection and a lot of sadness. Looking just at what's been happening in Canada, because I think a lot of people clearly have been watching what's been unfolding in Israel and in Gaza, but What's been happening here at home is a, is is also I mean they're they're linked, but there's something happening in Canada that I don't think we imagined we would see again in this country, and I'm wondering what it looks like within the community and what you've been hearing. I mean, concerning, disturbing is not nearly strong enough to describe um, the feeling of the Jewish community across the country in relation to this um, surge. Uh, not just a rising tide, a surge of anti-Semitism targeting Jews, um, a, a mainstreaming of Jew hatred that we've never seen before. And, and we've seen rises um, in anti-Semitism in times of conflict in the Middle East. We saw it in 2021. We've seen it, you know, um, at times of other uh, conflict there, but never like this. And And again, whether it's uh, on university campuses, in in schools, uh, in workplaces, on the streets, on the city streets, um, it's something that uh, that that I certainly haven't witnessed. And I'm, you know, we I, I get phone calls all day 
um, with people incredibly alarmed. What are they telling you about just their sense of security of being able even to display their religion on the streets? Well, when you see what's taken place in Montreal, you know, fire bombings, um, bullet holes in schools and, and synagogues, uh, when you see what's happened in cities across the country with mezuzahs, um, you know, that, that demarcate a, a Jewish home being pulled off or vandalized, um, hateful graffiti targeting Jewish businesses, you can imagine that it is, um, it, it, it makes Jews in Canada question um, their safety and security. And, and we hear a lot of that, and it's exacerbated for students on campus who all of a sudden um, can be facing um, a, a wave of hate, not just um, on, you know, uh, on the campus outside of class, but sometimes in class too, because we've seen um, uh, some of the uh, academics and faculty in these places really use the Canadian um, campus classroom and sometimes even school classroom to, uh, you know, to be a venue for bringing the conflict in. And, and, and that's just not where it belongs. And we've been incredibly concerned, doing a lot of work supporting um, Jewish faculty and students on campus, but they certainly, um, it's not life as it was um, just a few months ago. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I found so shocking, to be honest, is, listen, people can have their own opinions about the government of Israel. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's, but the idea that you would target Jewish businesses in this country, that you would target, you know, individual people's homes, uh, you know, students, anybody, it just feels like all of a sudden we've crossed a line that I didn't think we would see crossed. And yet... Uh, we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism before this happened, and I'm wondering whether that is of equal concern, because it feels like there are, there was already something going on. This has then superseded it, and yet you still have those initial concerns that were out there about you know far-right groups and so on. That certainly is something that's been talked about in Europe more extensively than here, but something that still exists. Well, it's an eye-opener. It's an eye-opener because those same dynamics that we saw, um, uh, yeah, you're right, in Europe, uh, in countries like France and Belgium, um, we're seeing taking root here. And you're right; there's certainly increased activity uh, on the on the far right, but also um, a, a pervasive um, wave of um, anti-Jewish sentiment coming um, from the far left as well. And we've seen it in the language and actions of um, unions and union leaders. Again, we've seen it in uh, spaces like campuses. We've seen it at some of the rallies. And, and listen, I, the right for um, Palestinians in Canada to be able to advocate and, and speak out and, and express themselves should never be in question. But when we start seeing elements within some of those um, rallies or independent of those rallies, glorify terror, um, target Jews, target Jewish businesses, with virulent hate, um, it's it's really, really worrying. And I can tell you that, you know, just before coming on air with you, I was sitting with Toronto Police because we got a, um, a letter that was a direct threat. Um, and um, it's actually the first one we've had directly um, uh, since October 7th. But um, this is the type of thing that Jews and Jewish organizations and Jewish synagogues and Jewish schools are dealing with. We've seen bomb threats. We've seen other threats to Jewish community institutions. 
it's it's not a good time for Jews in Canada, Ben, and and that's um, incredibly um, disturbing and alarming to have to say because Canada has been a place that's welcomed Jews, where we've built our communities up and and raised our families, and um, you know we're we're taking a look and and um, again we won't be backing down from this, we won't be intimidated by it. But we have to be realistic and we, we have to ensure that uh, uh, civic leaders um, at all levels are understanding the severity of the situation and are uh, having our backs. Uh, Michael, one of the things I have seen o- over the past few months, though, if there's a, if there's is a silver lining here, it seems to be that you know provinces such as BC and Ontario now mandating uh, more at least better Holocaust education for high school students and others. Uh, it feels like there is an awareness that there has been a gap here and that it's it may be addressed. Yes, we we uh, we have been working closely um, with the provinces, with a number of them. And you're right, British Columbia, um, Ontario really sort of got the ball rolling. And I, I give kudos to Ontario's Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce and Premier Doug Ford. And um, that work has really rolled out across Canada. We saw just in the last um, three weeks or so, uh, other provinces, uh, Saskatchewan, um, uh, Manitoba, also joining the list um, of provinces that are implementing um, mandatory Holocaust education because we know that we can't learn from the lessons of the past if we're not aware of the past. And and, uh, work had been done, studies in particular, the study by Liberation 75, which just showed that um, awareness of the Holocaust amongst the generation was... um, a incredibly low and those that do have some sort of a rudimentary understanding they've taken it from social media and if there's a common thread to this conversation with the conversation we were having about rising anti-semitism we know that social media in particular uh, uh platforms like tiktok which are incredibly popular and have great reach are in vectors of spreading the anti-Semitic tropes and messages and misinformation and hate that is becoming so prevalent, not just towards Jews, towards everyone. We know that they're just incredibly negative and they're where young people, sadly, are going to get their information. I've obviously spent time over the years sitting with, interviewing, listening to Holocaust survivors. I often think of of them um, these days. Just what must they be thinking? I can tell you what they're thinking because I speak to them and we had um, Holocaust survivor um, Andy Retti uh, just at uh, the Ontario legislator the other day for a, for an event that we did there. And um, they're so concerned. They're concerned about what they're seeing happening. Um, you know, the, the, the threats to the Jewish community, the, uh, again, the, the, you know, the, 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 the normalizing of anti-Semitism. But I'll tell you the message that has always amazed me and inspired me with every one of them I speak to. And that is, even with all of that being said, even from what they dealt with back during the Second World War and the years after, tremendous years of hardship as they, you know, moved to Canada and built lives and and had generation after generation. And that is that they still remain hopeful, not hopeless. And that's the message they give to students, to politicians, to anybody that wants to speak to them. 
so many of the Holocaust survivors that we have working with us. It's a message of hope and that we must not give up. We must use our voice until our last breath to inspire and educate because the alternative is just not one that should ever be considered. Silence should never be considered. And I'll go to the words that Andy left the crowd with the other day, and that was he called for them to be upstanders in the face of what we're seeing right now. Be upstanders um, in your communities, be allies to the Jewish community the way that you would expect the Jewish community to be there for others in their time of need, something that's been inherently part of who we are as, as Jews in Canada and around the world. And, you know, that's the message that I think I, I, I want to leave here. And that is that we're not hopeless. We remain hopeful for a better tomorrow, even with what we're seeing impacting the Jewish community now during Hanukkah and, and beyond. But just like Andy Retty, um, we will continue to work with people and, and hope to inspire them to stand with us as a Jewish community, because that's inherently who we are as Canadians. Michael, as always, uh, happy Hanukkah to you and yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Really appreciate you having me on and happy holidays to you in the weeks ahead. Now, Times Person of the Year is usually the domain of world leaders, royalty, popes, innovators, peacemakers, you name it. Imagine 14 presidents have claimed the title uh, since 1927 when it first started, several more than once. It also includes names like Gandhi and Martin Luther, Luther King, Lech Walesa, Haile Selassie. There are a lot of names on there. Um, officially, the criteria is that it's awarded to a man, woman, group, or concept with the most influence on the world for better or worse during the past year. And of course, this year, the choice was groundbreaking, but perhaps not surprising. Have a listen. This is the Today Show's reveal, by the way, yesterday. We're ready for it. The 2023 Time Person of the Year is Taylor Swift. Okay, yes. Taylor Swift. And I think you have several covers. Yes, you do. Run and an interview it. with Taylor. Mm -hmm. Let me just, let's just get this out of the way, Sam. Because the world is on fire right now. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is person of the year and it purports to say this is the most influential mm -hmm. person or group of persons in the world this year. You pick Taylor. We know about her influence. How did you justify this decision? Every year, you know, we get the staff together. We debate this throughout the entire summer and fall. Picking one person who represents the eight billion people on the planet is no easy task. And certainly in a, in a year when the world is divided, there's a lot of light and a lot of darkness. There are a number of different choices that could have represented 2023. But we picked a choice, someone who represents joy, someone who's bringing light to the world, someone who's taken her own story and made it big enough for everyone. Indeed. I mean, this really has been a year where Taylor Swift is much more than just songs, right? And a world tour. But the world tour in of itself, I mean, we've been t it's had an impact on U.S. GDP this year. It had an impact, a major impact on every city that it hit. They managed to hit the Richter scale in Seattle. Talia Miller, our technical producer, was one of those there, jolting uh, Safeco Field. Um, her domination of music platforms, a smash movie that she kind of did on her own terms, and her overall influence on just about anything she turns her gaze towards whether it be 
football, thanks to her relationship with Travis Kelsey of the of the um, Kansas City Chiefs, uh, to getting out the vote. It has been a remarkable year. The 33-year-old also makes history because, as I was mentioning, she's the first artist to claim the title of Person of the Year, um, the first woman to win it twice because she was also part of a group called the Silence Breakers, of which was recognition of the Me Too movement broadly back in 2017. Time calls her the master storyteller of the modern era and someone who uses music and the power of media to create create something wholly unique. Um, we thought we'd find out more about this. And joining me now is Kelly Conniff. She's senior executive editor at Time. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I know this is a hotly debated topic uh, at at the uh, at the publication over the course of the year. What gave Taylor Swift the nod? This is, I mean, it's maybe not surprising given what a what a phenomenon 2023 has been for her. But but still, I mean, given who she is and the people who come before her, it was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, it, it was. And, and, you know, it's so funny to hear you say that because to me it felt almost inevitable, right? And uh, I talked to so many people yesterday who some people were surprised, some people, it, it made all the sense in the world. Um, but more often than not, people said this was a good choice, which to me really meant that that people got it. But I, I think she was the person of the year because uh, this was a different type of year and she's a different type of person. And what we really looked at with her was the idea that she's this master storyteller and she spent this entire year and, you know, her whole career really, which goes back 17 years, deploying her art, her ability to shape narratives. And she really, like, just the way she shares herself with the world is somewhat unique. Yeah, it really felt like 2023. And again, I guess maybe it wasn't that, maybe it wasn't that she wasn't an obvious choice, just in terms of the predecessors for Time Person of the Year. Maybe it was, it felt like it would it would have been uh, slightly different from previous choices. I gather, I mean, I looked over the entire list. There really has never been uh, anyone from the arts community that has been named to that list, or at least not many over the years. That's right. She, she is the first person from the arts, which is pretty incredible. Um, the other thing that's unique about her is that she is just the fourth person who was born in the last century to be right. the first year, which is another kind of incredible fact when you think about it. You know, you have Greta Thunberg from a few years ago, Zelensky from last year, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so there definitely have been other people in that age range, but she's so different and so unique. And the other thing about her is that she was also part of a package we did for Person of the Year a few years ago called the Silence Breakers. And these were uh, people, primarily women, in including Swift, of course, who were speaking up in the wake of Me Too. And it's incredible to watch someone like her, who obviously is popular and has been popular for, for years and years, be a part of these kind of large cultural movements. Um, but this year in particular, it really like she was the sun and the moon. She was the axis on which everyone everything kind of revolved. And watching her kind of command attention on this grand stage was really incredible to see. Yeah, I'm looking back at what you was written about her in 2017 as part of the Silence Breakers it was interesting to see sort of draw a line between then and now and see how 2023 might not happen if the whole move to take back control that she was so much a part of in 2017 didn't begin because it felt like this was the year even at 33 this was the year where she sort of completely took control of a story that she's been telling for quite a while. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And she talks about it a little bit in, in the uh, interview we did with her where she says, you know, look, like I I've been around the block. I I've been 
Um, I've been up, I've been down, but these kind of two big things that happened to me a few years ago, one, of course, being um, the sale of her masters to Scooter Braun, who, who she considers to, to be one of her enemies. And, um, you know, the other, of course, uh, being uh, the the idea that she's, um, you know, kind of just changed her sound and who she is. And this all comes after, of course, the the phone call with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, of course, it dominated headlines in 2016. She says, you know, I wouldn't have gone back and re-recorded all of my music if those things hadn't happened to me. And if she hadn't re-recorded her music, um, she says she wouldn't have fallen back in love with her catalog, and that wouldn't have led her out on this massive record-breaking heiress tour. She said, you know, look, I've I've released a few different albums over the last few years. Um, I probably would have gone on a different type of tour. I would have done a little something a little more low-key. But after recording this music, and, and she's really kind of thinking about it in terms of reclamation, that this is her music, she's taking it back. She thought, well, I'm in love with this. I know my fans are in love with this. I want to share with this with them. And I think this is the year that it went beyond the fans. It became the world. What's What's interesting about her is you think if you think of her, and I mean this in the politest of ways, if you think of her as an influencer, everything she touches, everything she touches is somehow transformed, whether it be voting, uh, certain political issues that she cares about, although she's not particularly, she she, try, she tries to walk a line, I think, politically. Football, I mean, everything she touches, she transformed specifically in 2023. The economy, I mean, the article's written about the impact that she was having on on any city that her tour landed in. Uh, even, even, you know, the natural world when she set off an earthquake, in, or her fans did at least in Seattle this right, year. Right, right. I, I think it, it's so incredible when you see all of these facts laid out. And when I was working on the story, you know, we kind of were pulling this incredible amount of research and look like I went back and read every single profile that's ever been written of her, right, in the last 15 to 20 years, which is a lot. She's often described as one of the most popular people in the world. She has this great impact, this great influence, but something just shifted in 2023. You know, we say in our story that talking about Taylor Swift in 2023 was like talking about politics or the weather. It just became like the lingua franca of people, right? This is what what people wanted to talk about. You know, you you turn on a football game and as you were saying, you see her there. She's in the New York Times every other day for something else. And the thing I really like about her is a lot of this is for things that are out of her control, right? But so much of it is about her storytelling and her narrative. And I think that really goes to the heart of why people love her so much. She's the rare person who's both the writer and the hero of her own story. And there are other singer-songwriters, of course. There are people who um, you know, have written books and screenplays about her life. But it's very rare to reach the level that she's at in terms of writing these songs, this, this music that really connects with people. And if you've had your heart broken, uh, you've fallen in love, you've had something bad happen to you, something good happened to you, she has a song for you. And she's been taking these fans, whether you're casual or, you know, maybe you're a diehard Swifty, along with her on this journey. And it's not just the music, it's her whole life. Have you been interested to see who it is that dismisses her? Because I have a good idea of who it is that dismisses her, but she is dismissed by some because there are some who either are not open to their to that story, uh, which is which happens, or they're mu- sort of music purists who have some idea about you know who knows. Uh, but she has been dismissed time and time again, and yet twenty twenty three, she had the last laugh and then some. <laughs> She did. And and I think, you know, there, there's kind of a crucial thing in what you're saying, right? In that, you know, you don't have to love her music or love her narrative and or who she is 
to acknowledge that she's successful and that she's powerful and that she's really had an incredible year. And, you know, I had someone come up to me yesterday and be like, you know, I've never really listened to a Taylor Swift song, but I think she's a person of the year and made me laugh. But that just really encompassed it for me is that you don't necessarily have to like something to to acknowledge that they're influential. And I think sometimes people conflate that idea, right? That if someone is out there, that they they have to be annoying or insignificant. And when you look at the records that she's broken, not just in terms of Grammys and sales, but just the, the kind of long sustained success she's had, it's hard to say that she doesn't matter. It's hard to say that she hasn't had an impact on people. Um, coming up in 2024, I was looking back in 1975, the American woman was voted person of the year, uh, mostly because of the fight for women's rights. That's changed. I mean, it's 50 years later almost, uh, but it feels like uh, Swift, Taylor Swift has also sort of entered that fray a little bit in a different way. It's a different conversation than it was back then. Uh, but as women's rights have come under attack in America in the past while, she could have a big influence here. That get out the vote thing, never underestimate the power of Taylor Swift and with that get out the vote campaign that she was on. It, it's it's so true. And I think, you know, when she has decided to speak up, it really does have an impact. And I don't know if you've seen um, the documentary she put out a few years mm-hmm. ago. It's called Miss Americana. And it kind of details her decision getting to that point. It's fascinating to somewhat be a fly on the wall and watch as she works through these decisions, not just with herself, but also with her team. And you can kind of see the, the stakes that are there for someone, as you say, kind of at that level. Um, but I, I agree. I think um, anything she puts her mind to, she seems to make happen. And um, I'd be really curious to see what she does in the next year, especially with an election coming up in the U.S. in terms of just how much she plans to speak out. Does she want to talk about candidates? Does she want to talk about issues? Um, it's fascinating to consider. And the pressure's on, too. I was, you can't help but notice when you look back over the history of Persons of the Year that a lot of them have fallen from grace over time, right? Which is, I mean, the way of things, right? Whether it be the Gorbachevs or the Jimmy Carters or so on. And and when one looks at, at Taylor Swift, and you did all, you know, you've looked back at all the profiles written of her, um, it's hard to think, where does she go now? I mean, this has been such a phenomenal year. What happens next? It's a great question. I mean, the the first thing that we know is that she continues on this record-breaking monumental eras tour. She's only a third of the way through the tour yet, which is kind of incredible to think about just based on the amount of coverage of her tour, right? You know, people I know watch clips on TikTok every night. There are news reports from every single place that she goes. But next year, she really heads out internationally. So she'll be everywhere. I think she hits Japan February and does multiple legs and she'll swing back to the States and and she'll hit Canada. Yes. Um, Yes. That's been much talked about. (laughs) I I bet I I saw your, uh, you know, your prime minister was asking specifically for, for her presence, which is such a funny thing because so many leaders... Uh, across the world have done this because they know the attention she'll bring, the economic boom she'll bring, and also I think just like the light and joy she'll bring to people. Um, but but to finish answering your question, I think um, the other thing that she said she's going to do in the future, and and uh, you know it, it remains to be seen how this will manifest. She said that she's going to uh, direct a movie. She's going to do this for Fox Searchlight, and she's directed a lot of her music videos. Um, you know, just about two or three years ago, she directed um, a uh, long music video for her song "All Too Well," which she expanded as part of her. Uh, big, you know, re-recordings project uh, was really well received. She won a bunch of awards for it. Um, I think it's fascinating to consider someone like her who clearly has such vision, narrative, uh, and directive to think about what what will she do with the future film. Yeah, I, and and, uh, and it's interesting. I, I imagine you've already noticed this, but you know, 
I thought Vladimir Zelensky was a perfectly great choice as person of the year. I mean, Elon Musk a few years back, clear, great choice. Uh, these are the people that really made news that year. But I get the impression that much like 2023, even your choice of Taylor Swift has become much more talked about than one might have expected when you made the, not, not when you made the announcement, but when someone said, how much will you be talking about Times Person of the Year this year? You'd think, well, we probably talked about them all year already, right? Uh, here we are I, talking I... about Taylor Swift yet again. That That's so true. And, you know, that's kind of harkening back to what I said a few minutes ago, where folks have said to me in the last 24 hours, you know, I I, I don't know that I love her. Um, I haven't thought about her this much. Maybe I don't want to think about her anymore. But they all said this was the right choice. And to your point, some years the choice is really, really, really obvious. You know exactly who it's going to be. Maybe the, you know, there's a war or there's a, a world leader elected. Often we do the U.S. president um, in an election year. Um, but there's also something that felt really special and different this year. And this was a year where there's a lot of darkness. Um, and someone like Taylor feels like looking toward the light. And I think most folks who have reached out to me have talked about how joyful this choice feels, how good she makes them feel. And people are debating uh, pieces from the article and they're really interested in what she had to say to us, which is really exciting to see. Yes, uh, Kelly. Thank you so much for uh, walking me through that. For, I mean, I thought it was—I thought it was a really interesting choice. And you're right; it was—it was—it really encapsulated 2023 in a great way. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We had some big news today on the environmental front. Canada will indeed cap emissions from the oil and gas sector and require those to drop by at least one-third by 2030. That's according to a draft framework released today by the federal government. Canada's emissions cap uh, will follow a cap-and-trade model, and it aims to limit emissions from the ONG sector by at 35 to 38% below 2019 levels uh, by the end of the decade. That is below the 40% target that was anticipated uh, originally when they sort of started talking about this a couple of years back. Um, now, these regulations are expected, uh, draft regulations, by the way, are expected by mid-next year. The final regulations would go into effect in early 2025. The cap-and-trade system would begin as early as 2026. You know how cap and trade works. Essentially, you you are responsible for your emissions. If you go over, you can buy credits from somewhere else, or in this case, you can give money to a fund. So that, that way, you're basically paying for your mistake, right? So it's not technically a cap on on production. It does allow you some wiggle room, but you do have to pay for it. Uh, Energy and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson was asked about the lengthy delay between the announcement and when the system comes into effect. Here's what he had to say. Uh, I think we have developed something that actually uh, methodologically is uh, is very logical and actually I think Canadians will understand and appreciate. Well, I mean, p- part of the reason is that you need to, to give uh, organizations in the oil and gas sector time to adjust, time to plan, time to actually acquire technology. Um, so there will be some time for adoption, but there will be a significant uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas sector by 2030. Now, this one, of course, is very important to the Liberal government. This is kind of one of the main policy platforms they ran on was the environment. Uh, Not surprisingly, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers said today that Ottawa's plans to have the sector cut its emissions by more than a third below 2019 levels by 2030 is problematic. It says the industry is working to reduce emissions, but Ottawa's targeted timeframe is too ambitious. Uh, Alberta, of course, has raised concerns that such a policy would be unconstitutional and act as a de facto production cap. Uh, The province is already promising to challenge it. Uh, Brian Jean, who's Alberta's energy minister, said yesterday that the cap was an unlawful attempt by Ottawa to control the province's constitutional rights, which includes jurisdiction over their natural resources. We will be fighting it 
every step of the way, he said. Meantime, today, BC, the government here, the NDP government, came out and supported it, saying we are pleased to see the announcement from the federal government. It is an, it is an important step uh, for combating the global climate crisis. Well, joining me now with more on this is Brandon Shifley. He's the director of the Ivy Energy Policy and Management Center and a professor of business economics and public policy at the Ivy Business School. All of that at Western University in London. Brandon, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. You know, this is an important topic. I'm happy to discuss it with you. It is. Um, and we've been waiting for it for a long time, too. And there was a lot of speculation about what it may entail. Uh, what's your reaction to what's finally down on paper? Well, I think it's important to remember the big picture here. You know, oil and gas is a major economic driver for the Canadian economy. It's also a major emitter in Canada's commitment to achieving net zero by 2050. And so we've been waiting a long time to see these regulations. I think that they strike a happy balance between supporting economic growth and achieving our environmental ambitions. Because in this case, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole point here was not to to punish this, this fairly vital industry at the same time as recognizing what an, what an incredible percentage of Canada's emissions come from that very same. Uh, there was clearly a lot of consultation that went on. Uh, that being said, it, it it is a bit less than what they than what had been predicted in terms of the percentages, and they brought in a cap and trade system, which I don't think was necessarily predicted when this all began. So the initial regulations suggested something around forty to forty two percent reductions. The press release today, you know, puts it closer to thirty to thirty five. So it it is a little bit less stringent than initially suggested. Uh, cap and trade was one of the options they floated in their discussion paper last year. And so it was on the table, along with a series of other tools. You know, there are a range of tools in the government's toolbox. Cap and trade is one of those that sort of leverages market forces and the expertise in the industry. So I think this is going to be welcome news to members in the industry. Yeah. Maybe walk me through how this is going to work then in reality. I know there's still some consultation that has to go on and there's a whole bunch of different stuff that, you know, crossing the, the T's and dotting of the I's that has to happen between now and uh, and 2025. But when you look at what realistically this requires energy companies to do, what is it? So the final regulations won't be released in draft form until sometime next year. What we have is a high level overview of what the policy might look like. And so the government is proposing a two-pronged cap. There's an emissions cap, and then there's a legally binding upper bound. And, you know, that's a lot of terms that people aren't mm-hmm. going to be familiar with. Basically, the government wants to see 30 to 35% fewer emissions from the oil and gas sector by 2030. Now, it could be the case that the oil and gas sector grows really quickly. And we have to remember what that means. It means that there's a lot of demand for can- Canadian product. There's a lot of demand for what Canada produces. If that's the case, it's going to be a little bit more costly to reduce emissions to that 30 to 35% level. And so they've offered this compliance flexibility. This is the term they're using, which is kind of a release valve. You know, if the pressure builds too much to achieve this initial emissions cap, companies are kind of have a get out of jail free card where they're allowed to contribute to you know, a decarbonization fund or purchase offsets, which just means that they're paying some other entity to reduce emissions on their behalf. But the overall objective is to reduce the emissions that the Canadian oil and gas sector produces relative to what they produced in 2019. 
In this case, I mean, the industry's already been under a fair amount of investor pressure to do the same already. I mean, this is it's one thing to regulate it, which in this case, the government is attempting to do. But there are other pressures out there for the oil and gas industry to try to achieve these sorts of commitments. In fact, they've committed to net zero or by 2050 in many cases themselves. Sometimes they fight over the timeline. Is this one of the things that has come out, of course, again today by those who oppose this, uh, such as unsurprisingly, the government of Alberta, is that this is a production cap. Is is that uh, in your estimation, is that right or wrong? So the regulation is strictly on greenhouse gas emissions. So it is not on production. However, one of the ways that companies may have to deal with the cap is by reducing production. However, I think it's important to recognize the difference between the initial proposal, you know, that 40 to 45% reduction and what we heard today. You know, what we heard today is that we're going to stick with what they say are technologically feasible reduction metrics. And this includes, you know, carbon capture and storage, electrifying upstream oil and gas. These are all technologies that have been discussed by the industry that they're very familiar with, and there are things that can be done. You know, they're not necessarily costless. You know, they do cost a little bit of money, but they are things that the industry is familiar with and that they are pursuing already. You get the impression, looking at where they landed here, that they did attempt to talk to everyone to figure out what was needed, what was feasible, and what could sort of, uh, what was feasible in terms of beating their own goals, but also respecting what was was possible on the industry side. We need to recognize that one in every $4 of Canadian exports comes from the oil and gas sector. It is an engine for this this economy. It provides a lot of jobs, provides a tax dollars, it provides a lot of supports to the Canadian economy. And so hitting that balance is really hard. I think what we saw today is a, a meaningful attempt to achieve that balance. You know, it's not what they initially started with. It's probably not quite as lax as, you know, some such as the government of Alberta would like to see, but it's somewhere in the middle. And we have yet to see where it will finally land. But I think, you know, it walks that balance, you know, line between economy and environment fairly well. Brenda, the politics of this is probably pretty easy to predict. The federal government's had a few fairly significant legal losses recently. It had a big significant legal gain uh, on, on the carbon, you know, carbon pricing last year. It feels like this is going to be as perhaps as balanced as it may be, that this is going to be a political issue, a, a political fight really between Alberta and the federal government. BC, by the way, has come out in sort of in support of this, but it this really feels like a battle between Alberta and the government that will uh that will go the, go the distance, as many of them have of late. So it seems like another straw in the haystack. You know, this policy, the clean electricity regulations, seem to be lined up as a battle between Alberta and the federal government. You know, there's some thorny constitutional issues at play. Who has jurisdiction over which domains? Whenever you have policies such as this, you're going to have, you know, one group that suggests that it is not stringent enough, that we should do more, that we should be more pro-environmental. And another group that is going to scream foul that this is going to harm the economics, it's going to harm prosperity, you know, it might harm Canadians' bottom lines, it make it a little bit more expensive to live. Any policy needs to walk that balance. We've seen this rodeo before. We know how Alberta is going to respond. We know what the response from the federal government is going to be. It's hard to predict how this one will play out. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and also just with the way the polls are going too, you get the impression that, you know, a province like Alberta could rag the puck a bit here thinking there's going to be a change in Ottawa coming up maybe in 2025. Therefore, we don't really need to abide by this. I, and I suspect the sector may be looking at it in somewhat the same way. I mean, it, w- without being too cynical about the whole thing. Uh, but th- that's a reality. 
I'm not a political pundit, but I would tend to agree with you. We've seen a bit of whack-a-mole policy on environment and energy lately. The exemption on home heating fuel, I think, undermines a lot of the credibility on this file for the federal government. Uh, it is likely to be an election issue, and we'll we'll have an election probably in you know in next year or two years. And depending on how that plays out, the policy that was announced today could look very different by the time it's enacted in 2026, 2027. That being said, I, I do get the impression that the vast majority of Canadians both understand what you've pointed out, that A, the oil and gas industry is vital for the Canadian economy. At the same time, it's a massive emitter. And therefore, that the, you know, the objective would be to produce the greenest barrel of oil out there. And how do you get there, right? Because and, and, and sometimes you get the impression that Alberta's government is pretty much, you know, sort of championing an industry that doesn't really need, it could pretty much fight for itself. But anyway, the, the vast majority of Canadians would like to see that balance. And and that argument feels like it's getting lost a bit. So I think it's important to remember that this policy that was announced today, while important, is one of a suite of policies that we have out there, including policies that are aimed at the oil and gas sector. Another one, which I think is critically important, is the investment tax credit on carbon capture and storage. That one hasn't quite achieved the headlines that this one has. Um, for various reasons, it's more technical than a cap and trade policy, which is hard to believe in some respects. But all the same, that could encourage the Pathways Alliance, which is this group of five major oil sands producers, to create the needed infrastructure to capture and then store many of the, the emissions coming out of the Alberta oil patch, you know, up to 22 million tons per year, you know, roughly between you know, 15 and 20 percent of the whole sector's emissions. And that's critically important. And so that policy, you know, combined with this policy, provides a little bit more security for members of the industry. But overall, I would tend to agree with you that you know Canadians want to improve our environmental performance. At the same time, we don't want to hamstring the, the economy. We want to support the economic engines that we do have. And the oil and gas sector is one of those economic engines. Yeah. And we saw the methane targets, of course, earlier this week, which could also have an impact. So you're right. I mean, we often focus on these individual announcements and, and then everyone lines up in their usual corners to fight against it or fight for it. But in fact, you're right. This is a much broader policy initiative and it is incredibly complex and very controversial at times. I think the devil's in the details on these policies. When we see the final regulations in 2024, we'll be able to have a better appreciation of how costly this policy is. You know, I think the most telling statement from this morning's press conference was when the Minister of Environment and Climate Change Canada, Mr. Guibault, was asked what the cost of this policy was going to be. And he said, he, you know, roughly basically said, I don't know. We'll release those estimates when we release the cost-benefit analysis with the draft regulations in 2024. And so it's really difficult for Canadians to judge, you know, how costly this policy will be without seeing some of those details. When you look at this broadly now, so we had, of course, the carbon tax, uh, the, the carbon pricing carve out for home heating and so on. And, and now we're entering this different phase where obviously this government's going to try to pass a fair amount of legislation or at least introduce a fair amount of regulation, uh, trying to attempt to get to its climate goals that it's been talking about for years now. It's promised in every election. Um, how would you assess just the whole the whole kit and caboodle right now? Because it, feel, it feels like this has been this was the signature policy for this liberal government and it's run into a bit of a brick wall and they're having trouble delivering on it. So I think the carbon tax was the signature policy and the carbon tax had broad-based support from economists and academics like me. You know, there are good, you know, credible arguments to support it. 
it appears as though the federal government has backtracked from that broad-based carbon tax policy and have approached things on more of a case-by-case basis. I don't think that is the best overall approach, but if that is their approach they're going to take, the best we can hope for is that they design good policies on that case-by-case basis. And I would say that the policy we saw today is better than a lot of the other options that were discussed you know, in previous iterations. Overall, though, I think that there is broad support if we are to achieve our goals with respect to net zero, that you know, a broad-based carbon tax, you know, there's no reason to single out the oil and gas sector. You know, it is one sector among many. We could talk about cement. We could talk about fertilizer. We could talk about a number of other industries. Uh, singling out this sector seems a little bit strange. However, if we are going to do that, we want to get the details on that particular policy right. Right. And I guess uh, a lot of people will have time to uh, submit their feedback as this goes through the whole consultation process. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much. Thank you. Odd that we talk about baseball in the middle of December, right? I mean, the World Series is long over. Texas Rangers are the champions this year, if you weren't paying attention. Um, and yeah, it's, it's snowing in most places in this country right now. So baseball season feels an awfully long way away. It's two months, I think, before training camp begins down south in Florida. Um, but the winter meetings are going on, and there is a very, very big story out there these days. And that is, where will Shohei... Otani end up. Uh, there's really never been another baseball player like him because of the time that this show is on. Obviously, I don't get to watch a whole lot of live baseball these days, but I do watch it sometimes on the weekends and I watch the highlights like everybody does. And to describe how earth, how game changing he is, is difficult without actually watching him play. Uh, but no one's seen anything, anything like his skill set in at least a century. And even then, Babe Ruth is a, you know, Babe Ruth is a titan in baseball but he didn't play in an era like Shohei Otani does um he is already a two-time American League MVP he's been the rookie of the year he's a three-time all-star uh they call him Showtime Uh, not because he's particularly flamboyant because he's not at all it's just a play on his name uh but the 29 year old does it with both his bat and his arm so not only did he lead the league in home runs last year have a listen Shohei Otani taking the field before the game today, taking batting practice on the field here at Yankee Stadium. Otani rips one toward the gap in right center. This one is deep, and this one is gone! Shohei Otani puts on the show in the Bronx. It's a two-run homer in the top of the first. Right, so he's a slugger. You get that, right? He hits home runs. Uh, But he's also one of the most dominant pitchers in the game. Listen again. How great to see Shohei Otani on the hill here at the Big A. Fifth start, 2-0. Look at those numbers. Swing and a miss. Off to a good start there. One down and the first strikeout. And here's the 2-2. Oh, another one. The sweeper gets Melendez. Two down. Back to back Ks. He's just got it all working. He's got it all working. He strikes out the side. Oh, the force is mighty strong with Shohei Otani. Not one, not two, but three Ks. There you have it. I mean, growing up and when I was a kid, obviously I used to go see the Expos a lot. The pitcher would always hit ninth and, you know, he couldn't hit. That was just the way it was. They were brought in to throw. The, to throw. They, they weren't batters. Some of them, there were a few exceptions of guys who could actually hit, but not many. Shohei is like a slugger. 
He's like Reggie Jackson and Nolan Ryan. I mean, I know that's an exaggeration, but that's kind of what he's like in one. So, of course, to add to that, he's a massive draw, a megastar of the game in both North America and Japan. His jersey is the highest-selling jersey in baseball right now. Uh, but again, after six seasons with the Angels in Anaheim, he's a free agent. And the price to land him will be enormous, estimated to be in the neighborhood of something, you know, the contract in the range of 500 to $600 million, the largest guarantee in North American sports history. And one of the teams in the hunt is Toronto. Reports say that Otani flew to Otani rather flew to their training facility in Dunedin in Florida earlier this week. And pundits are now getting not just Canadian pundits, but pundits are giving the Jays a fighting chance at landing the biggest name in the game right now. Other contenders, again, as I mentioned earlier, the LA Dodgers, he may stay with the Angels, where he already plays, and uh, perhaps the Cubs, the San Francisco Giants are in there too. Um, but it's down to the down to the nitty-gritty, and Toronto are still there. The interesting thing about Otani is that ever since his early days, he's really chosen his own path, the one that he felt was right. He stayed close to home um, during high school when he was already a coveted star. He could have played anywhere, in any major Japanese city, Osaka, Tokyo. He didn't. He stayed home. Uh, he chose to go pro before before people thought he would, come to, or at least come to the majors before people thought he would. Uh, then when he did, he chose the Angels. Now, they're in Southern California, and they're a big name, but they've always played second fiddle in that market even to the Dodgers. But he also chose not to go to New York or Chicago or Boston. He went to the team that felt right. So where will he go now? That is the big question. And what makes him so unique? Uh, Jeff Fletcher covers the Angels for LA Daily News. He's author of a book called Showtime, the inside story of Shohei Otani and the greatest baseball season ever played. Jeff, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, this has been quite the uh, quite the quite the week. I mean, the speculation is rampant, but I gather, I mean, you know Shohei Otani well. He's take he's going to make the decision he wants to make when he wants to make it. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's really, you know, in the span of of major baseball free agents, we're not really that far into the offseason. It's been just about a month. And, uh, you know, the spring training is not for more than two months. So we're not even a third of the way through. So, uh, you know, people are impatient about it, but it's really kind of normal right now, the time frame. Even the prospect, I was I'm thinking back to last year, even the prospect of his free agency has been talked about now for, for ages because he was going to be such a hot process, such a hot signing when, when, when he came onto the market. What is it that makes, for people who don't watch a lot of baseball, what is it about, about him that is so absolutely remarkable? Well, I mean, the, the thing that's crazy about him is that he's a really good pitcher and a really good hitter which is just not uh, something that anybody else even attempts to do. Pretty much the only other guy in Major League Baseball history who did this was Babe Ruth. And that was 100 years ago, and he really only did it for two years. And he didn't really even want to do it because he wanted to just hit, you know, once he realized that he could do that. Uh, this is now three years that Otani's done it, and it's been, you know, amazing. And that's why everybody is so excited about it. Yeah, I, I suppose his value is not just his remarkable talent. It's also just what, um, I mean, I, I don't want to call it a spectacle because that makes it sound negative, but he is such an attraction to your team. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Angels uh, sell a lot of tickets because of him. They sell a lot of sponsorships. If you look around the ballpark, there's a lot of ads that are in Japanese that are, you know, basically Japanese companies that are aimed at the people watching on TV in Japan. 
and the Japanese fans that, that show up to the ballpark. So that is just a huge extra revenue stream that, that he creates that other baseball players do not create. So uh, that all kind of helps to, uh, to pay for the huge salary that he's going to end up having. Yeah, that reminds me a bit of, of just how popular Ichiro Suzuki was when he was in Seattle and elsewhere afterwards as well. But just when he first came over to uh, to the major leagues, just what a sensation he was. He used to have these huge contingent of Japanese reporters following him absolutely everywhere. Yeah, Otani's got the same thing. And uh, I would say Otani is a bigger deal than Ichiro because, you know, the, the Japanese fans loved Ichiro. But as far as American baseball fans, he was really not so different from other American players that we had. So, you know, you didn't see people, you know, lining up to to want to go see Ichiro, you know, in a, in a city on the road because he was so different from everybody else. But that is what you have with Otani. What's been amazing about Otani, even just watching the highlights, is, you know, he'll he'll strike out the side and then, you know, club a 500-foot home run. It, it, I mean, he led the league, led the American League in home runs last year. He's the first Japanese player to ever do that. Plus, he won 10 games. I mean, it is, it is. you're right. I mean, the stats are almost, you see things that he does week in, week out, and these are things that haven't been seen in baseball since it was being played, you know, in the 19, you know, the latter part of the of the 19th century. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible, and, and there's a lot of people that want to say that, oh, he's going to start this trend, and there's going to be more two-way players, but I just don't believe that at all. I think that he is an incredible outlier, and uh, just because he can do it doesn't mean anybody else is going to be able to do it as much as they want to, because it's really, really difficult to do what he does. What What is the secret? to his I mean you watch him play a lot I gather I mean he is he is a lover of the game and is as disciplined as could be he works he works to be that good at both sides on both sides uh, of the field well he's got an incredible amount of talent obviously first of all and he's uh, very single-minded in his dedication to perfecting that skill uh, and I think he's also really learned how to manage himself in terms of not making any extra throws he doesn't have to make or taking any extra swings he has to make. Just he knows exactly how much he has to do to maintain both of these skills without, you know, wearing himself out or, or taking away from one side or the other. He's a pretty private guy, I gather. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, nobody really knows hardly anything about him. He is very private, as you said, that he, he just wants to be known for what he does on the field and then basically be uh, left alone. And uh, I think that's kind of just his personality but i also think that he is so focused on baseball that there's there's not a whole lot else uh that he does so i don't think we're missing out on uh the big story of uh, all the things that he does in his free time because i think it's he doesn't have any free time i think he's focused on baseball and then uh getting his rest to do it again the next day eat sleep baseball yeah it, it would make sense now it was a bit of a, i don't think it was a i mean la obviously anaheim is a massive market la southern california is a massive market but from the get-go even when he was a high school player into the into the into the japanese leagues and then over to major league baseball he's always kind of decided where he wanted to go based i'm not quite sure on the entire spectrum of what his decisions is based on but he doesn't necessarily just go for the biggest name team he tends to sort of figure out for many reasons why he wants to go to a certain team and that's what he does he doesn't seem to be too swayed by huge reputations when he was in high school i gather he stayed near his hometown he didn't go to a big japanese city when he came to uh, major league baseball he went to the angels he didn't go to the yankees or the dodgers uh he kind of marches to the beat of his own drummer that way yeah i mean he's really he's talked about just a, a feeling that he gets and a connection that he's had with these teams that he's chosen the 
the fighters he chose in Japan and then the angels he chose in the United States. Uh, so I imagine that when he picks a team as a free agent, we're probably not going to get a super uh, detailed description of why he picked them. He's probably going to say again, it was just a feeling he had from meeting the people and, uh, and visiting the area. And, uh, you know, that's just sort of the way he does things. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting in this day and age that he does things that way. That being said, I mean, given the amount of talent the Angels had on their team, you know, Mike Trout, another generational player, Otani, clearly a generational player. It's a reminder, though, that in baseball, just having a ton of talent doesn't necessarily allow you to win a lot of games. Well, you definitely need more than two. And uh, part of the problem is that the Angels really haven't even had two because most of the time that Otani has been at his best over the last three years, Mike Trout has been injured. And the, the three years before that, when Mike Trout was healthy and putting up MVP seasons, Otani was not really what he has become. So they haven't really had both of them playing at their peak at the same time, uh, hardly at all during the last six years. But uh, even beyond that, even if they were, you still need 12, 15, 16 good players, you know, really above average productive players to uh, to have a really good team. So, Jeff, you've obviously been following all this speculation that's been going on. There's certainly a lot of excitement in Toronto because there is a sense that maybe, just maybe, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, Otani will get that feeling. You say Kikuchi pitches there, and he's a they go back a long way. So Toronto has a few intangibles, but what, what does it look like from where you sit? I mean, we really don't know. He hasn't uh, really given any hints. I think that we all sort of expected the Dodgers would be a strong candidate just based on sort of some circumstantial evidence that we know about what his preferences might be. And and we know the Dodgers did meet with him. Uh, the Blue Jays are probably not a team that a lot of people would have expected a few months ago, but there's been enough evidence that he's pretty seriously interested in the Blue Jays, uh, that he went to, to visit at their spring training facility in Florida. So uh, I think you have to put them in the mix. And I think that you shouldn't rule out the Angels just because he's been there for six years. He's very comfortable with all the surroundings, he knows how things work. And, uh, you know, for a guy who's really routine-oriented, I think comfort is, is an important element. Yeah, I mean, I suppose regardless of where he winds up, he's going to change. I mean, if he stays in a, with the Angels, it clearly he just goes back to what he was doing. But if he winds up in a city like Toronto, I mean, it's hard to describe what it does to that team, period. I mean, he brings a lot more than just his skill set. Well, yeah, I mean, he's going to make the, the Blue Jays will be a much more popular team on the road. You know, when when uh, they go into other cities, team people are going to want to come see Shohei Otani. Uh, the, the first year, it's not going to be quite the same because he's not going to be pitching because he just had elbow surgery. So he won't be pitching again until 2025. But still, he's 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 a kind of special player that people circle their calendars to have a chance to go see him. Do you think he's worth the amount of money he's I mean it's what's tough about baseball and you mentioned it earlier about the Angels too is you need a you need a full roster to win. Um is, is it worth spending that much money on one player regardless of how once in a lifetime he may be? I mean it, it, none of us can really say what anybody's worth. It's uh, supply and demand basically so you're worth whatever somebody's willing to pay you. I think that in general free agents end up being a bad deal in the long run because players don't get to be free agents until they played in the majors for six years, which means at least six years, which means by definition, you're going to get their older years when you pay for them as a free agent. So they're probably by the end of that contract going to be getting worse and you're going to be paying them the most money they've made in their whole career. So usually that ends up not quite being a good quote unquote value, 
but you know you just hope that when you get the beginning of their time that they're still in their prime and maybe you win a world series or two while you have them and then you can just sort of accept what happens at the end but uh you know in otani's case there's only one of them you know if there's enough teams want to get him uh you're gonna have to pay do you get the sense in Otani's case, though, that unlike perhaps some other big name free agents over the years, that he's uh, he's disciplined enough that you mightn't see? I mean, it might come to a time where he can't do both, but that he's disciplined enough that he'll continue to to be a real, very a big impact athlete into his thirties, just because he's always taken such good care of himself. I mean, you would like to think that, but he's also doing something that nobody's really ever done before. Uh, so right. there's no blueprint for this. I mean, uh, like we mentioned, Babe Ruth only did it for two years. And then he said, you know, I, I can do this when I'm young, but I don't know how long I can do it. Uh, Otani's now done it for three years, and he just had another surgery. So, you know, if he if he comes back from surgery and he can do this again for three more years, I think that would be awesome. If he does it for six more years, that would be awesome. If he does it for 10 years, that would be awesome. So whatever he's done, basically, or whatever he's going to do is going to be something that nobody else has ever done. So... We shouldn't take it for granted and we shouldn't expect that he's just going to be able to maintain this level for for 10 more years because it's something that nobody's ever done. Yeah, I always think of Bo Jackson, who who is a remarkable football player and a remarkable baseball player. And you always wanted to say, please stop, do please just play baseball before you hurt before you get hurt. And of course, that's what happens sometimes with Otani, too. I think when I watching him hit, you just think, oh, just, you know, just hit. You'll be great. You know, you'll be a fantastic hitter for years to come. Uh, but he obviously loves the pitching, too. I mean, he's always been fantastic at it. You know, the interesting thing is that really up until this year, people had asked me all the time, like, what he's better at. And I always said pitching because he had never really struggled as a pitcher. But he had periods as a hitter where he wasn't as good, where he'd go into slumps, he'd strike out a lot. The only problem he ever had as a pitcher was injury. Uh, this year, he actually had some moments where he wasn't really pitching that well, even before he got injured. And the hitting was just sensational for the whole season. So the point is that he's he's really good at both. And uh, I couldn't tell you which is going to be better five years from now. But uh, it's it's nice to have t- two choices. Right. I, I suppose you must have. You must be leaning towards wanting to watch him again for another five, six years, especially now that Mike Trout appears healthy. It may be nice to see those two players play together on the same team. Uh, but now I'm going to sound like I'm not cheering for Toronto to land him. So I don't want to do that. It's been it's been really fun to watch him for uh, especially these last three years when he's been at this high level he's been. And obviously I wrote a book about him, so I'm kind of tied to him a little bit there. But, uh, you know, he's he's not going to uh, take my feelings into consideration. So uh no, know where he wants to go. Yeah, it'd be interesting. To, I mean, obviously for Canada, it would be massive to see him play on our one team. I mean, the whole it wouldn't just be Toronto that would go that would that would become uh, Showtime fanatics. It'd be the whole country, right? And that's saying something. Well, don't think that I haven't uh, given thought to uh, selling books to a whole new country of uh, fans. So <laughs> yeah. that could be the silver lining if he ends up there. Yeah, yeah. If he signs with the Jays, you know, you know where Jeff's book is. It's called Showtime: The Inside Story of Shohei Otani. Jeff, thanks so much for your time tonight. I guess we'll all be we'll all be waiting and watching to see what he does. All right. Thanks for having me.